young woman in her early 20s, uh, just married or, or barely married, and, and becomes crippled by unexplainable depression and anxiety, uh, mental sickness that makes it hard for her to work, let alone pursue God. And, and, and she's been serving the Lord her whole life. Or, or what about the young man who's only 17? He's in high school and in a freak backyard accident, twists up his knee in a way that seemingly steals his hopes and dreams for college ball in a matter of seconds. All three of these stories, serving God faithfully, trying to pursue him, and suffering comes out of nowhere and slaps him in the face. Needless to mention, the, the men and women suffering forms of, of, of slavery or, or poverty or food insecurity all over the world. And we're left with a stinging question. Why would a God who is all-knowing and loving, I, I mean, he's supposed to be the embodiment of goodness, right? Why would a God who is all-knowing and loving allow suffering in the world? Why would he do that? Especially for his people, right? I'm excited this morning to talk to you guys. Not, not just, uh, I know this is kind of a downer intro, but I'm excited because I believe the Lord has a message for each one of us this morning. So uh, what I want you to do is if you have your Bible or Bible app, turn with me to Genesis 32. Genesis 32. And that's where we're going to be studying today. It's the story of a man named Jacob. Okay, many of you have heard of Jacob. Uh, he later became renamed, anybody know? Israel, that's right. Uh, but his name at the beginning of the story is Jacob. And his story, I want to mention here at the beginning, is very broad. As you can see, he's pretty much the main character of Genesis 25 all the way through Genesis 36. So he has a lot of information, and I encourage you. What I'm going to be doing today is barely skimming the surface of this story. So go and read it and, and, and dig into what I'm going to be talking about. But Jacob was a man who knew suffering. He did. He knew what it was like to have life or people deal you uh, an unfair hand. His name Jacob, according to Genesis 25, actually means supplanter. Supplanter. Some of you may have already filled in that blank as deceiver, and you wouldn't be wrong. Those are both very similar meanings. But it indicates uh, someone who dishonestly or unfairly takes what isn't his, be it wealth, position, or power, but he dishonestly takes what isn't his. Jacob's name meant supplanter. It's very, very interesting that his name means this because as you know, probably, these stories involving Jacob's early life very much lived up to the name supplanter or deceiver. And let's, let's get into that. I want to call attention first, though. This guy, uh, I love this piece of art, by the way. Had never seen this one before. On the left, uh, is known as Jacob, and then I would say the guy on the right is more uh, the embodiment of Esau. And, and I think this is a cool picture because Jacob was probably a little bit smaller than Esau, a little scrawnier, right? Uh, he, he was quite a bit smaller, and Esau was kind of this big man's man, hunter, yeah, Hulk maybe. He, he had the outdoorsman ability, and there was definitely a contrast between these brothers who were twins, um, and it, it was just... This was their relationship, and I think this, this picture sums it up well. But here's the thing. Starting in Genesis 25, Jacob and Esau 
had some issues. So check this out with me in Genesis 25, 28. We're going to read a few verses to give some context. Um, Isaac, that's their dad, he loved Esau because he ate Esau's game. That's, that's the stuff that Esau had hunted and brought in. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Rebekah was mom. Go on, verse 29. Now Jacob uh, cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. Esau had been working. Jacob was cooking. Esau said to Jacob, please, feed me with that, uh, that, that same red stew, for I am weary. And uh, therefore, his name was called Edom. Keep going. And Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright as of this day. I'll give you the food. And Esau said, well, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Anybody ever felt like that before? Uh, what is it? You kind of lose, lose perspective of what life is about whenever you're hungry or you're having another um, passionate impulse. And Jacob said, well, you need to swear to me. And so Esau swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And check out this last verse. Uh, and Jacob gave Esau uh, bread and stew of lentils, and then he ate and drank, arose and went his way, and then... Esau despised his birthright. You know what's interesting is I sometimes get this story confused with the next story that happens where Rebekah helps Jacob fool the father. And sometimes they kind of get mixed up in my head, but I want to remind you this morning, these are two separate occasions. Jacob supplants Esau by himself first. Then Rebekah helps him. And they supplant Esau again. So we're going to check that out here uh, in, in Genesis chapter 27. This time <clears throat> came to pass that Isaac was getting old. This is his dad, right? And his eyes were so dim that he could not see. And, and then he called Esau, his older son, and he said to him, My son. And Esau answered him, Yes, here I am. Then he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know when I'm going to die. Probably soon. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, go out to the field and hunt game for me and make, my, and make me a savory food. I imagine him saying to Esau, make me that, that meal you made at one time. Just that incredible thing. I told you it was my favorite. Make it for me one more time. Bring it to me that I may eat. My soul may bless you before I die. He's saying, it's time for me to bless you, Esau. So cook me one more meal and come back and let's, let's bless you. Now, Rebecca, who does Rebecca favor? Jacob, right? She was listening in. And when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went out to the field to hunt game and to bring it back, which is not, not always a short process. Any hunters out there know what I'm talking about. You go and you spend hours, you might not find anything, right? So Esau's gone. And Rebecca, she took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, uh, which were with her in the house, and she put them on Jacob, her younger son. And, and Rebecca whispers into Jacob's ear, I think you can do it. I think you can steal his blessing. She's taking Jacob's side. She's helping him supplant Esau here. I promise this is going somewhere. And, and she puts uh, the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. Keep going. A couple more verses. Then uh, she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And finally, uh, Jacob went to his father and he said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? 
If you don't know the rest of the story, it goes like this picture here. Jacob kneels and tricks his father. His father reaches out, feels the the goat's hair, smells the savory food, and he assumes that it's Esau. And what I love about this piece of art is you have another figure in this picture. It's Rebecca. She's sitting there aiding in the deception, even in the moment, watching it all unfold to ensure her son. They're both her sons, but to ensure that her son, Jacob, is taken care of. So Jacob, supplanter, the deceiver, kind of encounters maybe what I would say is a defining suffering of his life, really changes the direction of his life, and that's this, family drama, or I might even say family split. And my, my assumption is this morning that there are probably some of you in the room who at a very young age experienced a family split, and you probably have seen it affect the direction of your whole life. This was the, 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 the situation that Jacob came up in. Dealing with a, a dad that it was vocally known loved him less than his older brother. What that does to a young man, I, I can only imagine. This falling out, mom and, and Jacob falling away from dad and and Esau, leads to Jacob and Esau's estrangement. And we get this interesting passage at the end of that same chapter where he steals Esau's blessing. And this is verse 41. Esau hated Jacob. A minute ago it said he despised his birthright. But now that Jacob did it again, he hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. In other words, Isaac's going to die soon, but then I will kill my brother Jacob. It's no longer a petty argument. There's blood to be spilt here. Verse 42, again, complicating matters. The words of Esau were told to Rebekah, and she sent and called Jacob and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. And Jacob pretty much freaks out, and he flees. He runs away from the situation. I thought it was interesting as I was reading this this week. Your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you. That's a whole lot worse than just saying Esau wants to kill you. It's like the way Esau soothes himself at night is imagining ways to kill you. That's not something you want to be told, <laughs> especially about a, someone who knows where you live, knows where you sleep, and is, is uh, actively involved in your life, right? So Jacob, he flees. He gets away. And now we're going to do a montage of his life showing you some different vignettes where Jacob suffered along the way. Not all of these we're going to read, and so you'll find a, a chapter reference down in the corner of the screen. And if you want to go read this, I encourage you to dig it out on your own. A second type of suffering that Jacob uh, faced was he was sorely taken advantage of by this fellow here. I'm sure you guys have heard this story. Laban, anybody ever read that story? Yes. So Laban was the father of the woman that Jacob loved. He fell in love with Rachel. So he, he, he worked for Laban for seven years so that he could have Rachel as his wife. And what does Laban do? He, he switches the wife. He gets Jacob probably uh, drank up a little bit, right? And he switches the wife. 
And instead of marrying Rachel, he has Jacob marry his older daughter, Leah. And then he says, oh, you wanted Rachel? Well, that's going to be another seven years, man. And Laban, I would, I would even consider this maybe like almost like job abuse, right? He is gaslighting uh, this guy, Jacob. He's gaslighting him. He's making him feel small. He's uh, endearing himself or endearing him to himself um, by, by giving him all this like pressurey stuff. And then eventually, whenever he begins to uh, actually have kids with Leah and with Rachel, he uses excuses like, well, wait, wait, wait. These are my grandkids now you're talking about. And he pressures him that way as well. Laban is condescending and he abuses Jacob again and again to the point where God began to bless Jacob while Jacob was working for Laban and it just angered Uncle Laban. And it became a similar situation where I believe Jacob was a little afraid that Laban might try to take him out. So Jacob flees once again. Still suffering, still wondering what's going on. Or, or maybe this story, this is a little bit lesser known. Jacob's daughter, Dinah. Anybody ever heard this story of Dinah? Shechem, yeah. This is a disturbing one, but here's what happens, basically, in, in uh, how I would con- consider telling it to you. Shechem um, has a thought like, okay, hi. Uh, now, now there's a lady, right? He, he's kind of crushing on Dinah a little bit. She, he thinks that she's pretty fine. Well, he, he does some things that are not so nice to Dinah along the way. Well, Dinah's response is not necessarily, oh, I just love him. No, she's kind of like, ew, <laughs> I'm going to call my brothers. Well, Shechem works out this whole plan. Oh, it's okay, I'll, I'll marry her, and then it'll be fine, and everything will be washed under the bridge, and Jacob, her father, will forgive me, and we'll, we'll be able to live in the land together. And so Jacob is working out a plan with Shechem and with Dinah, and what happens, if you've heard the story, her brothers, Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, they come into the camp while Shechem and all of his, his male family are being circumcised so that he could marry Dinah. And Simeon and Levi kill every last man in the camp. And Jacob says in the scripture, you've heaped trouble on my head. You have caused me to be blacklisted by the people of this land, in essence. And I can't imagine the stress that put on Jacob as well. In Genesis 35, uh, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, the one that he worked 14 years for, the one he loved the most, dies. She dies before Jacob's father even dies, an early death. It crushes him. In the same chapter, Jacob's dad dies as well. Then we get to the story that Tony spoke about last week. Jacob's son, yeah, it was Jacob's son, Joseph. Joseph gets, gets hosed by his brothers and sold into slavery. Jacob doesn't know that. All that Jacob knows is that his son is gone. He assumes that he's dead. Thinks he's dead. And for most of his life from that point on, he lives with the understanding that his son is just gone. He's dead. And then this story happens, which is another really messed up one you may not have seen before. Judah is, is one of the older sons of Jacob. And Judah's son, his name was Ur, 
He was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he gets offed by God. That's what the scripture says. And so what happens is Tamar is left without insurance, without a stable family, and she tricks Judah, and Judah ends up crossing a line in the family tree you probably should never cross. You know, and it occurred to me as well, one of the other uh, brothers of Judah actually went the other direction, and he slept with one of Jacob's concubines, Bilhah. Reuben, that's right. So, again, (laughs) there is so much suffering surrounding his life. And that's not even to mention what happens at the end of Jacob's life where his family has to uproot and move because of a famine. And yes, there's celebration because his son is restored, but it still comes amidst a season of great suffering in the land. So this man, this man suffered. This man suffered. So much of his life was trauma, family drama, sexual misconduct, as we read in the the family tree and the thing with Shechem and Dinah. Death of family members that were close to him. Abuse from other people and great fear. As I mentioned at the beginning, running afraid from Laban, running afraid from Esau. And as we're going to center in on here, uh, might be some of the greatest suffering that he faced. Because that's today's story, Genesis 32. Jacob meets Esau again. It's been 20 years. It's been 20 years. And, And maybe this could be the most fearful moment in Jacob's life. Because the last memory that he has of Esau is this verse we read just a minute ago. The words of Esau, the older son, were told to Rebekah. And she told Jacob, your brother comforts himself by thinking up ways to kill you. I mentioned this earlier, right? This is his last thought of Esau. And 20 years later, he finds out, you're going to meet this guy again. You have to cross paths with him again. And so Jacob is left with this moment where he's going to reconnect with Esau. And his mind is not caught up on is Esau going to kill me? His mind is caught up on how is Esau going to kill me? It makes sense? So maybe, maybe Esau will, will uh, use his, his hunting tools, like his staff, or his, he's just going to beat me to a pulp, right? Or maybe he's got a, a big rock that he's going to find and just crush me with. Or maybe Esau is going to bring an army of hundreds of troops and attack me, right? Um, does anybody know what makes this picture different than the other ones? He's got three hands. Yeah, I don't know why, but that was a cool picture. Okay. Uh, and, and actually, that's interesting, the last one, because that's what, that's what Jacob finds out. He sends messengers forward ahead of him to Esau and says, you know, give him gifts, talk sweet to him, tell him that we're coming to make peace. We're not coming for war. And, and this is what happens when he sends the messengers out in verse 6 of chapter 32. Um, the messengers, messengers go out and the messengers returned to Jacob and they said, uh, we came to your brother Esau and he is also coming to meet you. And then this last line, and 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, understandably, and he divided the people that were with him, the flocks, the heads, the camels, into two different companies. And he said, this way, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Once again, it's not if Esau's going to hurt him. It's how can he mitigate the losses, 
right? Deep, wrestling fear in his heart. And I never understood this before, but it's on this night, this eve of meeting Esau, where fear is running off the charts, that Jacob has an encounter with God. This is where we're going to read together. Verse 24. Jacob was left alone. He had been with his family, and at this moment, he kind of walks off alone. And uh, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. The scripture says in Hosea that this was an angel. It says an angel wrestled with him until the break of day. Verse 25. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, this is the angel. When the angel saw that he could not prevail against Jacob, the angel touched the socket of Jacob's hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. To, to translate that, it was a pretty even match. And then the angel touches his hip and just dislocates it. It doesn't say he pulls on it. It says he touches it. I don't know how that happened. 26, it says, uh, and, and he said, this is the angel again, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob says, I will not let you go. Until what? Until you bless me. Jacob's refusing to give up. He's, he's clinging to this man, this angel thing, and he's asking for a blessing. And, and Jacob noticed, I believe, that this traveler was not a man. Jacob noticed that there was something divine here, Maybe it, it was the one-touch hip dislocation. But he noticed something, right? And he recognized that something divine was at work. So he says, please, bless me. And then verse 27, he says, uh, the angel says, well, what is your name? Now, if this is the angel of the Lord, he probably knew his name. But get this, and I never got this before this time reading it. He says, what is your name? And he makes him utter the word, deceiver. Supplanter, Jacob. What, in other words, another way to say name in Hebrew is like, what are you made up of? What is your nature? You see what he's doing? He's humbling Jacob. He's humbling him. And when Jacob admits, man, I've been a deceiver. I've been a supplanter. <laughs> then the angel says, you will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. You will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob is blessed by the angel, and his name is shifted to, to Israel. A major shift in connotation happens here because Jacob, as I've mentioned so many times, deceiver, supplanter, Israel is more related to victor or royalty. It is the family of God. It is God's chosen. Jacob has a complete change in that one verse. And then uh, these last couple of verses, Jacob uh, asks, saying, tell me your name, I pray. The angel says, why is it that you ask about my name? And then he blessed him there. Verse 30 
So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Verse 31, just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. So Jacob's trying to kind of come to grips with what had happened, but he praises God for preserving his life and blessing him, and then he limps away. And here's the point. Through all the seasons, the suffering seasons in his life, Jacob made a point to consistently choose to honor God anyway. Through all the suffering seasons of his life, Jacob consistently chose to honor God anyway. We see this time and time again. Here's just a few examples. Um, when Laban pursued Jacob, Jacob set up an Ebenezer, as we sang around this morning. He, he set up a, a rock that, that points to God. He set up a rock to say, God, you, you did this. You got me out of here, Right? Uh, in the middle of fleeing Esau the first time, when his mother told him, Esau's going to kill you, he flees and, and he sets up an Ebenezer to the Lord, pointing to, to God um, because he was committing his future to him, I believe. Like, this is the God who saved me. I'm going to follow him. And then when Jacob returns to Bethel in 35, this is right after meeting Esau for the second time and right before Rachel died. I think that's interesting. Right before more suffering hits, he sets up another pillar to God, and, and he honors where his purpose and his leading and his protection had come from for all those years before. And then in this story, Penuel, he, he sets up a commemoration of what God had done. I love this piece of art. This is my favorite one this morning. Jacob wrestled with God, or at least an angel of God. And he was at his peak moment of suffering when this happens. His fear was off the charts. And, and for all of his despair, he might be killed first thing tomorrow morning. And yet in this moment with the Lord, what comes out is not despair. It's not hopelessness. It's, it's four things that I think we can emulate. Because here's the message. And I want to jump to Hosea because this is important. This is where they kind of recount what happens. The prophet Hosea says, Jacob... Uh, he took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength, and this is recounting this story, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He prevailed. He was victorious. He wept, and he sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. Jacob struggled with the angel, and he prevailed. So my question is this. If Jacob wrestled and prevailed in the middle of suffering, how can we wrestle with our suffering? How can we wrestle with the question of suffering in the world and prevail? Well, I think it starts here. When faced with suffering, we respond like Jacob responded. First, we have to have tenacity. Tenacity is, is kind of like um, perseverance in a way, but it's, it's a action is implied inside of it. Tenacity is, is refusing to give up and instead taking action toward God, toward hope, toward uh, the idea that God can still move in your situation. And while we're being tenacious, taking action, we also 
have to have perseverance. Perseverance is more of that straight up holding on. Sometimes it's hard to to take steps, but you can hold on and understand that suffering is only for a season and that God is going to see you through, that God is walking with you through it. We see that here in Jacob's story. Another thing that we need in these moments is humility. Man, do we see that in Jacob's story. The angel says, what have you, what has your life been? What, what, What are you called? He doesn't give him all this false information. Well, I have all these flocks and I have a big family. No, he says, I've, I've been a deceiver and a supplanter. He humbles himself. We accept our own weakness and we refuse, get this, refuse to blame our suffering on the system. Refuse to blame our suffering on somebody else. But we accept that there's weakness in us. And ask God to backfill that. How many of you know, from what we've read, Jacob could have blamed his suffering on some other people. It wasn't all his fault. I mean, there's a chance he wouldn't have done what he did without his mom's negative influence. Laban caused him so many issues. But he doesn't blame. He humbles himself and says, I've, I've been a deceiver. And finally, we must have hope. That in the middle of the suffering and the fear, when he begins wrestling with that man, Jacob calls out and says, bless me. Bless me. (laughs) We need to trust that God can provide a solution and look for it actively. Keep our eyes open looking for when the solution is coming. And following these things, I think we can easily prevail just like Jacob did, easily. Because at the end of the day, Jacob, Jacob, he limped away. Hold on a minute, that can't be right. At the end of the story of, of, of prevailing victory, he limped away? Well, as you probably put together in your head, much of the suffering I referenced came after this story. It wasn't this moment happened and then he never suffered again. And so he didn't necessarily prevail here in his suffering once and for all. And actually, in some ways, his suffering worsened. His suffering worsened after this moment. So how does this help us? Because now, he's not just afraid, now he's afraid and limping. Esau's going to have a much easier time killing him now, right? How does this help us? This question is still glaring at us in the face. Why would a good God allow us to suffer? Why? And then that gives way to other questions that begin to spring up in my psyche. Like, is God even good? Or, or maybe, is God loving? Is, is, does he hear us? Is he real? This, and then it can spiral to so many other things. What's the point? Am I alone? Maybe God's more of a clock maker. Am I even good? Why didn't God show up? But it all starts from this one question. We begin to question everything. Why would a good God allow us to suffer? Why would he allow me to suffer? 
And let me just contend vulnerably to you. I believe this is one of the mysteries of the faith. And I don't think there's a take-home note answer that makes it all better. And now I understand why God lets me suffer. But, despite being something that maybe we cannot fully grasp, I think that this is one of the truths that we can kind of angle at from different pieces and, and slowly get more of a complete picture of why God would allow suffering to happen. And that's my goal this morning is all that I've done, and as I end it here, to help us get one angle that might help us. So let's quote, quote C.S. Lewis, right? <laughs> You've heard Tony joke about how uh, every good sermon has a C.S. Lewis quote. Well, this is actually a topic that I feel like C.S. Lewis is maybe the most quotable on. He did extensive work on the problem of pain and suffering and why that happens. And this is actually from his book, The Problem of Pain. And, and this is a fascinating quote, and you've got to really lean forward and pay attention to get it. But at the end, I'll kind of summarize. He says this. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look at things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center of things. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not even exist for his own sake. And then he quotes scripture here. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And then he sums it up this way. We were not made primarily that we may love God, although we were made for that too. Get this. We were primarily made that God may love us and that we would become objects in which the divine love could rest well pleased. You may be wondering, what does that have to do with anything? Suffering, we know it's an essential part of the human experience. But maybe instead of being antithetical to love, it's actually part of the playing out of the love of God in our lives. Maybe our definition of love is too narrow. Maybe we've grasped onto what culture says love is. It's supposed to feel good. It's supposed to be easy, right? It just kind of happens to you. And we don't understand what true God-sized love is. What if suffering is the playing out of the love of God in our lives. See, here's the thing. Jacob, he was faced with all kinds of suffering and he was wrestling with it, right? And I believe he probably wished those suffering things in his life would just evaporate. When, when approached by this divine man, this angel, Jacob could have just folded. He could have fallen on the ground, fetal position, and said, get it over with, kill me. Right? Like maybe 
maybe you'll kill me so that Esau won't have to tomorrow morning. But no, Jacob stood up and he chose to wrestle. Like this was a moment that any other man might would have given up. But Jacob said, no, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to wrestle you and I want you to bless me. He didn't pity himself. He didn't fall down. He didn't let the angel kick him around. He wrestled with God. I think some of us feel like that might be sinful to get up and grapple with the divine and say, why is this going on? Jacob was setting an example for us. He wrestled with this question. He wrestled with his own questions. He sought blessing and mercy when it seemed unavailable. How many ever prayed a prayer when blessing and mercy seemed unavailable? You've had that before? I have too. And I think that sometimes can feel hopeless, but Jacob did it anyway. And we have to do it anyway. He wrestled with his suffering. And here is at first a seemingly sad message, but I believe it is the divine love of Christ at work in our lives. God didn't change Jacob's suffering. You know that? He limped away. God changed Jacob. God changed the man Jacob. He went into that suffering. He came out of that wrestling match suffering. But can I tell you, he went into that wrestling match a deceiver, a supplanter, a liar, a shame-filled man. And he came out divine royalty, man of God, close to God's heart. And yes, it was a working out and it wasn't all in that one moment. But God didn't have to change his suffering at all. God changed him. God used the suffering as a kiln to pound the shape of the instrument that he was making into shape. And I believe some of us this morning need to hear that. God may not change your suffering, but does he ever want to change you? Does he ever want to transform you into an object in which the divine love of the Father can rest well-pleased. Amen. Amen. It's my pleasure this morning to invite you guys to listen to a good friend of mine's story as she shares. So y'all welcome, Jaylee. just going to give part of my story, and then I'm just going to talk about my viewpoint on why we suffer as Christians. Um, so my story is very complex. Some people deal with emotional pain and some with physical pain. I, I deal with both. I am adopted. When I was born, my father was never there. He was out of the picture, and my mother invited bad people into the house and um, it just wasn't a safe environment for me growing up in my early years. Um, my mother then invited a man into our house, and he was the definition of a bad man, and abuse occurred in that home. Um, eventually, caseworkers, they removed me from the home, and they gave my mother a list of things that she had to do in order to create a safe environment for me to grow up in. And these things like get a job, get a car, all of the necessities that would help me grow up 
And um, she was doing great. Uh, during the time, she was having to take drug tests, and uh, she's passing them. She was getting everything accomplished. And then they said, okay, we have one more, one drug test. You pass this, and you get your kid. If not, then we're going to have to take your kid. And she failed. And that hit me hard. I mean, I was little. And uh, I had to say goodbye. I didn't even know I was saying goodbye. I didn't understand at that point. And uh, so I, did, I never really got to say goodbye, and I beat myself up over that. And um, so I dealt with feelings of rejection. I dealt with uncertainty of what was going to happen to me. I um, fear. I dealt with all sorts of feelings. And um, thankfully, though, God has blessed me with a family, um, the fields, uh, some of my family sitting back there, and uh, my parents are working in the back, but um, they, they mean so much to me, and they showed me, like, who, what a true family is supposed to look like, and what a true family is supposed to be structured around, which is God, and um, as I grew, I fell into a massive pit of my emotional baggage, and um, it led me down a really deep and dark place. Like, it flooded me with all sorts of those feelings. And um, when I chose to face my struggles and my suffering with worldly advice and answers, it made it a hundred times worse. Would not recommend. And uh, <laughs> I learned that the spiritual realm is very real. And I learned that demons are not fictional. They're not just in the Bible. And um, I struggled with depression and anxiety, and I struggled with severe suicidal thoughts and actions for a period of time. Um, but it was in my worst, deepest, and darkest place of my struggling that I realized that God was helping me and that he had provided me with what Vic's been talking about, providential relationships. I had my family, my mom and dad, my brother, sister, all of my family. They, they were able to help me in that time. They were able to speak life into the situations that I was in, in that darkness. And then there's also several ladies at this church, and you know who you are. They talked me through it, and they, they gave me steps on how to face the struggles that I had, not with the lies of the world, but with the truth of God. And um, they were able to help pull me out of that pit that I had dug and that I'd fallen into. So when I faced my struggles with God's truth and in Him, I was able to take the giant step of forgiveness. And that is a big word. With His help, I managed to forgive my mother and to forgive every other person from my past that inflicted pain on me or put me in a dark spot or wasn't there for me. I'm, I'm able to forgive them because, first off, God forgives all of us. And nobody's perfect. We've all done things. But he chooses to forgive us. So why should I hold that grudge against my family? I have no right to. It just took me getting knocked flat on my back to understand and see what God wanted from me. He wanted me to seek my answers from him, not the world. And he 
wanted me to trust and believe that he had good things in store for me. It wasn't, uh, if I see it, I'll believe it, God. No, I had to put myself in the place of, God, I know that if I believe it, I will see it. And that was difficult. I mean, that's a lot of trust. And I dealt with, still deal with some trust issues, but I mean, it was really bad back then. And um, even in the moments of my suffering, there has been bright spots too. Um, over the years, I've been begging my parents, can I please see my mom? I want to see her. I, I have this hole in my heart. I want to fill it, like please. And my parents, they finally arranged for me to get to meet her. And it was more than I thought. Like it was, it was, it made me feel so good. I felt so content and so at peace because I saw that she truly cared. I saw that she looked at me with love, even though she hadn't looked at me for years. She instantly, I could see that she cared and that she loved me. And now, looking at it, Chandra, my mom, she showed me how a true mother acts and a true mother's love in our home. But then I can look at my other mom, my birth mom, and I can see that she, she gave like the truest act of a mother's love. She sacrificed me to get me out of the bad situation that I was in. She loved me enough to hurt herself mentally and physically and emotionally just to save me. And that, that's pretty deep. But um, so that, that was amazing. And I thank God every day for that. Um, on the physical side of things, my birth family passed down to me a genetic disease called CMT which is Charcot-Marie-Tooth. It is a neuromuscular disease. And um, what it does is it causes my muscles to atrophy and tighten. It's not that my muscles are weak. They're very strong, very strong. <laughs> but my nerve signals are faulty. Um, and this can progress over time. Uh, I have what I call a lava walk in the morning. It's kind of funny. I get up and I'm like walking like this. I can't walk because my legs, I can't bend them because they're so tight. And um, in the mornings, sometimes it's a hassle to get out of bed because my legs are so tight, I have to stretch in bed. And uh, I know I sound old. Um, <laughs> I struggled at school with athletics because all the cool girls were doing sports, all the guys were doing sports, and I was like, I want to do sports. I can do that. I'm strong. I got this. Mm, no. I was a little slow, and I was not at all flexible, not at all, couldn't even touch my toes, and um, I got bullied for it. Uh, I, I had this one situation where I was in the weight room, and all the girls, middle schoolers, are literally squatting like 100 pounds, and I'm over here, I can't even do a full squat, and uh, it was kind of embarrassing, and the coach gathered all the girls around me and was like, come on, Jaylee, squat. You can squat. And it, it broke me. That was my breaking point. And I begged God every day, like, God, please heal me. I want, I want you to touch me. I know that you can heal me. Please, God, please. Did I put any actions towards that? No. And um, I went to church camp every year. And every year at church camp, all my friends would be miraculously healed. But I wasn't. I would have all these people around me, and I'd be like, okay, God, it's time. I believe in you. 
And then I would see a girl with scoliosis walk out with a straight spine. There's a girl that goes to our church, and she had flat feet. She now has arches. And hallelujah, praise the Lord. And um, I was sitting there going, okay, God, when is it my turn? I mean, five years. Come on, please. It didn't happen. And I had a lady come up to me, and she said, hey, Jaylee, maybe you're not going to get healed miraculously in this moment. Maybe God is planning to heal you through surgeries. Or maybe he has some other method of healing you that you can't, like, haven't figured out yet. And two surgeries later, I can confidently say that he has definitely healed me. He is definitely healing me right now. He's in the process, and he's already done it. And um, I lost my spot. <laughs> Through my healing journey, I learned the definition of faith. And um, I skipped. <laughs> Even though that my surgeries are going to take a, a year-long full recovery, I'm way better off than I was before, and I have strong faith that he will heal me completely before I leave this world. I have no doubt. And um, through my healing journey, I learned the definition of faith, a faith born not of words, like at the beginning whenever I was just, God, please heal me. No, of deeds, digging into his word, Seeking him, praying, actually worshiping, and asking him to come in and letting me receive him. That's, that's true faith. And it's, I, I'm not perfect, okay? I struggle some days. Some days I'm like, I don't want to pick up my Bible. Please, God, no. Because I'm scared of it sometimes. Um, I came to the realization that God allows us to experience the pain because he wants to connect with us, and he wants to have us seek him. He is our father, and in that pain, he wants us to run to him with our arms outstretched, saying, help me, pick me up, help me. Just like a toddler, whenever you see a toddler scrape their knee on the ground, and they always run to their mom or dad, and they're like, please help me, I'm in pain. That's what he wants us to do. And I know that it sounds childish, but we need to have childish-like faith. Okay, and I actually have a verse that I found that goes really good with this, and it is 1 Peter 5.10, and let's hope that I can find it really quickly, but, okay, it says, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. Hallelujah. Amen. Through all of that suffering, he's planning on strengthening you. <laughs> okay, so he has a plan through that suffering. So that gives you a little bit of hope. Maybe that's your fire starter for faith, okay? Well, I think a really big thing that my parents are teaching me um, is my mom and dad, they instilled in me that even though I come from a victim background and I can call myself a victim, I'm not. I am a victor, okay? Every day, not just with health, but with all of my emotional stuff and with everything else that God, that I, that I go along with in my journey with God, okay? I'm a victor. So in other words, when I choose to wrestle with my suffering, God makes me a victor. 
not a victim. I have another verse to go with this. And uh, it is 2 Corinthians 12.10. And it's this. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that is so true. It took me, though, from going to my weakest moment to my strongest moment in order to read that verse and understand it, in a sense. I mean, even throughout our pain, he has a, he has a plan for us. And um, so if there's anything that you're dealing with, may it be emotional pain, physical pain, or places that um, just make you feel like a victim, I pray, I want to ask that we pray for healing. I want to ask that we pray for guidance and perseverance to get through that time. Because sometimes he doesn't always have that immediate answer. Sometimes we just have to pray for perseverance to get through it. So I pray for perseverance. I also want to ask that we pray for freedom. So that y'all can feel that same freedom that I felt whenever I forgave. And whenever I met my mom. And whenever I got through those surgeries and I was like... Thank you, God. I'm healing. Okay? Because God wants you to be the victor in your situation. He doesn't want you with the mindset of a victim. He wants you to be the victor. And he is willing to give you everything that you need to get to that spot. He's willing to send his troops out for you. All you have to do is have faith and ask. Um, I feel like today a lot of people are going to gain a victory. I feel like a lot of people are either going to strengthen their faith or gain more perseverance. I feel like today he's going to work wonders. So that's, that's my testimony and that's my view on faith. It's awesome. Thank you guys so much. And if you would, go ahead and stand up all across the room. Um, we're going to respond to this message before we leave. I want to say this, too, because Jaylee's not going to say this, because she's telling you the truth. She's a victor, not a victim. But a few years ago in middle school, she was told by the doctors, and it is true, this is an incurable disease. Without a move from God, it will be with her forever. And I'm not saying that to put down anything that she shared, but I want you to know if there's anyone of this age in the room that could say I'm a victim and she's choosing to live in victory, she's wrestling with God and prevailing in God. Is, God is, like she said, given her great freedom. It's incredible. But I wanted you to know. I just wanted you to know that. So what I want you to do is close your eyes with me around the room. Jaylee's actually coming downstairs. Uh, she's going to stand up here by the front of the stage. And, and there's other youth leaders around the room that are coming as well. But it's not coming to pray with you. But what I want to do is just in response to this, this question of suffering, um, we'd be remiss if we didn't give you an opportunity. So if you are struggling or you have a prayer that you have been praying about suffering and it just hasn't been answered and you're looking for answers 
And this morning, maybe you were moved and like, okay, maybe the Lord is trying to do something in me. Maybe the Lord wants me through this suffering. Maybe he wants to change me. What I'm going to invite you to do is just come down here to the front of the stage. And again, you don't have to come talk to Jaylee or anything, but just come stand down here and begin to ask the Lord to change you. And then we're going to sing one more song. We're just going to worship together. And you may feel the hand of a youth leader or a youth on your shoulder praying for you. But we're just going to all this morning, everyone who's suffering, re-grab a hold of the code of Jesus and hold on. Okay? So every eye is closed right now. I'm going to go ahead and ask, if that's you, go ahead and start moving down the aisles to the front. And as you do so, the, the band's going to begin to play, and let's just worship together. So please come. You won't be the only one. If you're going to move, feel free to open your eyes. But everybody else, keep your eyes closed for a minute so that those who need to move will move. And then we will worship together. It's okay to move. Suffering is, is part of the experience of life. And God wants to change you wants to transform you and move in you. So let's come down here and pray and worship together. joy and in the sorrow I find you just the same and behind my darkest morning there's a peace I can't explain I'm so grateful for your favor your mercy and your grace 
Be still. 